And this morning, we want to look specifically at the giant of fear and anxiety. We want to ask the question, how can we fear less? How can we deal with these difficult emotions? And what does the Bible have to say about it? So I want to share with you a story that's from the life of Peter, particularly, but all of the disciples, these guys who hung out with Jesus when he was on the earth. If you want to follow along with me, it's in Matthew 14. So if you've got your Bible or your phone or ever, feel free to dial it up or find the right page, or you will see it on the screen. The version on the screen is from something called the Contemporary English Version, so you might not have the exact same version on your phone, but don't worry if some of the words are a bit different. And it says this, it says, Right away, Jesus made his disciples get into a boat and start back across the lake. But he stayed until he had sent the crowds away. Then he went up on a mountain where he could be alone and pray. Later that evening, he was still there. By this time, the boat was a long way from the shore. It was going against the wind and was being tossed around by the waves. A little while before morning, Jesus came, walking on the water towards his disciples. When they saw him, they thought he was a ghost. They were terrified and started screaming. At once, Jesus said to them, Don't worry, I am Jesus. Don't be afraid. Peter replied, Lord, if it is really you, tell me to come to you on the water. Come on, Jesus said. So Peter then got out of the boat and started walking on the water towards him. But when Peter saw how strong the wind was, he was afraid and started sinking. Save me, Lord, he shouted. Right away, Jesus reached out his hand. He helped Peter up and said, you surely don't have much faith. Why do you doubt? And when Jesus and Peter got into the boat, the wind died down. So fear less. How do we fear less? You know, this is a story from the life of Peter and the disciples where they encountered fear, great fear. The story says they were literally screaming with terror at the time, where in spite of that, Peter was able to step out and do something amazing. But once again, his fear and his anxiety held him back. It made him start to sink. And that's what fear and anxiety do. They limit us. They hold us back. They can be disabling. But they're such interesting emotions because they are part of our normal human emotional pattern. They are part of the healthy way that your brain works. So at the same time, we need them. We know that they are the emotions that cause the most problems. You know, more than one in ten people are likely at some point in their life to have what is described as a disabling anxiety disorder. In young people, that's even higher, about one in six young people. In fact, we know that in some studies asking students, asking young people, we see even higher rates. In one study asking students what they were struggling with, 90% of students said they were struggling because of anxiety. One third of women, one in 10 men, will suffer at some point in their life with panic attacks. And we have seen in the last decade a 28% rise in hospital admissions that are related to anxiety. So what is going on with these difficult emotions? How do we get rid of them? Because presumably that's what we want to do, right? Well, 
Interesting, is it? Think about it. I have a seven-year-old son, as many of you know. I think he could do with a little more anxiety in his life because he seems to have no fear whatsoever. He throws himself off things. He runs out into the road without looking. He is totally nuts. He needs me around sometimes to stop him and calm him down. Anxiety actually has a real purpose in our lives. There are studies and loads of research projects looking at people who, for whatever reason, have lost the normal experience of emotions like anxiety. And again and again, what those studies show is that those people, they are not the superheroes of modern life. In fact, they are inevitably disabled and challenged by their loss of normal emotions like anxiety. So much as we might say they're a nuisance, we clearly want rid of them. Actually, the story is more complicated than that because your anxiety has a purpose and it's very much like one of these on the screen who has a smoke alarm in their house. Yeah, we have these newfangled ones, they're linked to our electrics. We have never heard our smoke alarm sound because if there's smoke in our house, which is usually because I'm burning something, um, they say in this very scary disembodied voice, there is smoke in the hallway. The alarm may sound. The alarm is loud. And at this point in the Middleton household, general panic ensues and people grab sofa cushions, magazines, anything we can find and we do the smoke alarm dance. Who knows the smoke alarm dance? Yeah, it's this one. Everybody do the smoke alarm dance. That's what we do to try and stop them from going off. And anxiety is just like a smoke alarm. It warns you that something significant, something important might be going on. There is a risk that there's a problem. But how many people here, the last time your smoke alarm went off, your house was actually on fire? Yeah. I actually ask this quite a lot because I speak on anxiety a lot and I had one big conference where I did that and some poor guy about halfway back was just like, yeah. And I'm like, oh my goodness, I'm so sorry. But I'm glad you're okay. But the reality is of life, like what causes yours? Just turn to the person next to you and tell them what sets your smoke alarm off, not the anxiety one, the real one. Burning toast, yeah? Trying to wedge a croissant in the toaster, that really doesn't work. All those crumbs in the bottom, yeah? Bacon, cooking bacon, yeah? So, anxiety has a purpose. Its job, like a smoke alarm, is to warn you of something, but just like a smoke alarm. Sometimes it's oversensitive. It goes off when you don't need it to. But it has three basic functions. Its first job is to get your attention, just like a smoke alarm. You know, you are going about your everyday life. You have a million things in your mind. Your brain needs a way to make sure that you pay attention to the things that matter. I was once putting fuel into a hire car. You know when you've rented a car and you've got to fill it up before you give it back, otherwise they charge you loads for the petrol they put in it. And I'm putting fuel in and I'm thinking about the flight we've got to catch and have I got, the, have I got all the children? I was going to say that is something I should be anxious about. Have I got all the stuff? We packed everything. And suddenly I feel really anxious and I don't know why. I'm, and like I've got butterflies in my stomach and I'm, feeling, and I'm literally looking around thinking, why, why am I feeling anxious? And that's when I realise I'm putting the wrong fuel in the car or I'm about to and I am like thank you so much brain because you stopped disaster that's the job of your anxiety it gets your attention there are bits of your brain that literally scan the world around you for important stuff 
And if it needs to get your attention, it does that with anxiety. That's why all those sensations that you get when you're anxious are so hard to ignore. They're designed that way. Its job is to get your attention. The second thing that it's designed to do is to set you up in case you need to react. So you all have heard of the fight or flight response. Actually, anxiety, there's three Fs. Don't worry, none of them are rude. Fight, flight, or freeze. Because there's three things that you need to do in moments of crisis. Either fight back, run for your life, or sometimes just to freeze. You know, we all like to think that in life's dramas, particularly in traumatic situations, that we would do the fight, that we'd do it really well, that we would be held together. You know, research shows that actually nearly three quarters of us in a crisis will experience the freeze reaction of anxiety. And it's designed to protect you. When you freeze in an anxious moment, your body releases hormones that are designed to prepare you in case you're injured. It is about your brain preparing you you for the worst that might be about to happen. But it's not always the most constructive response, is it? And studies show that in, in moments of disaster, like when there's fires or plane crashes, a huge number of, the, of the, the injuries and even deaths that occur are because people just freeze. Because anxiety, when it hits, can be overwhelming. It's designed to have a function, but sometimes it can cause us problems. So it sets you up to react. The third thing that it's designed to do is to get you thinking, to analyze what is going on. Do I need to react? The problem is when it's that strong and powerful, actually it switches off your thinking mind so that you're reacting basically just out of instinct because your brain is saying to you, there might not be time to think, just do it. So in the moment, sometimes our reactions to anxiety are about impulse and instinct and not thinking. But actually, the way that we manage anxiety and deal with it well is about the way we act and react to it long term. So your fear, your anxiety may not be a choice and in fact is a good thing in terms of how your brain works. Sometimes it's oversensitive and your brain triggers it too often like that smoke alarm in your house. But in essence, it's a good thing. The key is about long term how we react to it. Because one of the most interesting things about anxiety is that our basic instinct to respond to it often makes it worse. So if you encounter something you're scared of, like you're walking down the street and a big dog comes and jumps up at you and barks at you, what's the the next thing that you do? The next time you walk down the street and a dog comes, what do you do? You avoid it, don't you? You cross the road. You go a different way. You don't walk past past that house with the big scary dog anymore because your head says, if I avoid it, I'm less anxious. The trouble is that somewhere in your brain, the more and more that you do that, you start to believe the only reason that something bad didn't happen is because you avoided it. And somewhere in your head, you start to think, if I ever don't avoid it, the bad thing will definitely happen. And so anxiety grows and grows. And it can grow incredibly quickly. And it can leave us trapped, pushed into a corner because we've become so anxious we don't know what to do. Because there's so many things that we're trying to avoid and stay away from. We've become fearful. Our avoidance has strengthened our fear. 
This is a quote from a guy called Alex Honnold. Alex Honnold is, has become famous because of the film Free Solo. I don't know how many of you have seen it. This is the story of Alex's climb of El Capitan, this massive granite rock face in the US. And he is the crazy guy who climbed it with no ropes, no safety equipment. It's called Free Climbing. You can see a picture of him doing it just there. And Alex talks loads in interviews and in the film about his experience of fear and how he's learned to overcome his fear, to regain control. He says the key thing thinking about fear is to differentiate between real justified fear and fake anxiety. Fear is a physiological response, your body basically sending you a signal in the same way that hunger or sleepiness are signals. And whether or not you choose to act on it is up to you. Fear doesn't need to rule you. Sometimes the right response when your smoke alarm goes off is to recognize it's a false alarm. Alex has learned to overcome that, to gain control over his fear. In our household, as I said, my son is seven. Many of you will know him. Um, And I have a daughter who's about to turn 14. So we, about seven years ago, had the privilege of reading through the Harry Potter books, which we all love as a family. They're great stories. Lots of good things to discuss with your kids coming out of them. And we get to do it again now, because Nathan is very rarely seen at the moment without his Harry Potter cloak and glasses on. He is centrally bang in the middle of the Harry Potter zone. It's good because we've moved on from the Lego zone. This is a new zone. This is my zone-based theory of parenting. If anybody wants to hear more about that, you can come and see me afterwards. But there is some great psychology in these books. And one of the many things I love about them is the chance to talk about things like fear with my kids. And there's this great story in one of the books. It's the Prisoner of Azkaban, if anyone is wondering, where Harry is talking to one of the teachers, because he's, he's a wizard. You know, new readers start here. He's a wizard. He's in wizarding school. And he's talking to one of his teachers about these creatures called boggarts. And what boggarts do is when you face them, they become the thing you fear most of all. So if you were scared of spiders, it would turn into a spider. Whatever you're scared of most, it becomes. And he is explaining to the teacher that what it would become if he faced it, actually, you'll see in the next picture, is one of these dark, shadowy shapes. This is another type of magical creature that's called a Dementor. And J.K. Rowling, who wrote the books, based the, the, the creatures, the Dementors, on her own experiences of anxiety. And what they do if they're present is they suck all the good feeling out of you and they make you feel cold and shaky and like you'll never be happy again. And at their worst, it's totally disabling and you can't think clearly. So that's what she based in mentals on. And Harry is explaining that that's what the boggart would turn into if he faces it. And the teacher says this to him. He says, this suggests to me that what you fear most of all is fear itself. And he says, Harry, that's very wise. It's very wise. And it is very wise. If you think about all the things that you have worried about in the last few months, in the last year, and then you think how many of them have actually happened, even the ones that do happen, if you think which was worse, it happening or the worrying about it, the fear, the dread, the anxiety... I would suggest to you it is much more likely that your life will be negatively impacted by your fear and anxiety than by the things that you're worried about, most of which 
will never happen. And our fear of fear is what generates this spiral where it grows and grows and grows from being something small and manageable and functional that's part of the way our brains are designed to act well and becomes something overwhelming, something difficult, something that limits us and pushes us into a corner. So how we fear less is not about not fearing at all. It's about how we react in those moments when we do experience fear and anxiety. So what does the Bible actually say about fear? Many of you will have heard people say that in the Bible there are 365 statements, do not be afraid, one for every day of the year. Rick Warren certainly teaches that, many people do. I, I don't, it's a bit of a debate. Go and Google it after the service. Some people say there's actually more like 80 or 90. It depends which translation you read and what you count, what you don't count. Certainly fear is a big topic in the Bible. It is something that's talked about a lot. And it's really important that we understand the context of it because what the Bible is not saying is just, you shouldn't have it, you silly person. Why are you afraid? Because so often what we feel when we talk about fear is another difficult emotion. It's guilt. If we were proper people, particularly if we were proper good Christians, we would have no fear. Anyone ever felt that? We would be able to strive through life without ever feeling any anxiety or fear. And that is not what the Bible teaches. The more we try and suppress emotions like fear, the more they grow. Remember, their job is to get your attention. The only way to deal with them is to understand where they're coming from. And I want to look at today the most common New Testament word for fear, which is this one on the screen, which you can see is the root of our word phobia as well, this Greek word. And interestingly, the actual meaning of this word is about how we act and react to our fear more than the emotion ourselves. It carries this meaning of withdrawing, of fleeing, of running away because we feel inadequate to face the thing that we're up against. And I want you to remember that as we now go and look at that story that I read right at the beginning of this talk, because I want to look at five things that that story teaches us about fear from the experience that Peter and the disciples had. So let's look at it in a bit more detail. So it says right away. Now, a bit of context. This story happens just after the feeding of the 5,000. Though many of you will know that story. It's a classic Sunday school story. Most of you will have heard it in one form or another. So basically, they've had a busy day. Jesus has been teaching all day. He's just pulled off this massive miracle. There are lots of people there. And clearly, he needs some headspace. Because what he does is he sends the disciples off on a boat. He sends the crowds away. And then Jesus goes up into a mountain to be alone to take some time to pray. What's interesting is the language that's used. When it says that Jesus made the disciples get into a boat, literally it means he compelled them. In my head, they're like, well, actually, maybe we'll stay here and help you clear up. And he's like, no, seriously, get in the boat. He's like pushing them in. He makes them go. He's got a purpose here. And it's interesting, there's an implication that the disciples themselves were reluctant in some way, even at that stage. Many of them were accomplished sailors. Maybe they could see the weather wasn't ideal. 
It was the end of the day. In that area, storms and high winds often blew up at night. They didn't want to cross the water at that point. In fact, people in that day were wary, basically wary of water. The, the Greek word for water has the same root as the word for chaos. And there was this sense in the culture at the time that water was this terrifying, chaotic thing. There was a great respect and fear of big bodies of water of the sea and of lakes like this one. So they were understandably reluctant to get into the boat. Jesus was sending them into potential chaos. And how often is our walk with Jesus like that? You know, we talk about an emotion like anxiety. I would say to you, the reality is the more that you want to push into this life with God, this walk with Jesus, the more you want to do this amazing adventure that God calls you on, the more likely you are to experience anxiety because he calls you out of your comfort zone into new experiences, new places and new challenges. So anxiety is inevitable. It's a part of human life, but particularly it's a part of walking with God. So you are not, hear me this morning, you are not a failure because you experience anxiety. It is an expected part of your life. It is an expected part of your walk as a Jesus follower. But you do need to learn how to deal with it. The second thing to note then as they sail into chaos is they hit something. Now, Actually, there's nothing in this passage that says it was a storm. What it does say, though, is that the wind was against them. Now, let me be clear here. I am not a sailor. I am absolutely rubbish on boats. My children will tell you that if you are ever on a boat with me, um, the only boat you'll ever get me on really is if I have to go on a ferry, if I absolutely have to, or occasionally a barge on a canal. And I have got seasick on a barge before, just to warn you. But mostly on boats, I am in the horizontal position groaning because I get seasick on any form of boat. So I'm not good at boats. However, I am good on bikes. Most of you will know I'm a very keen cyclist. I do lots of biking. And has anybody ever been on a bike ride where the wind is against you? Yeah? It has been a very windy spring this year. I'm quite bored of it. We need a nice, calm summer. But there's something about cycling into the wind. Presumably sailing into the wind is the same. Maybe even worse, because you have those big flappy sail things. I don't have one of those on my boat, but maybe I should get one. Anyway, when you're cycling into the wind, it is physically exhausting because it doubles the amount of effort you have to make. But it's also oddly emotionally exhausting too because you are just fighting all the time, aren't you? And this is what's happening for them. They are against the wind and they're a long way from shore, so they've been doing this for a while. They know they have a long way to go before their fight is over. And again, the language is strong. The waves are not just big and difficult. The, the Greek says they are literally tortured or battered by the waves. This is a tough struggle. It's exhausting. But it's not a sign that they're in the wrong place. Remember, Jesus sent them there. So challenge and difficulty that triggers anxiety is not something to be alarmed by. It can still be part of being on the right path, and that's their experience. God had them covered. Because this is the third thing about this story that it says. A little time before morning, what happened? Jesus came. Literally, the original language says it was in the fourth watch of the night, that's like three, four in the morning. So it is 
the darkest, deepest point of the night. Anyone who's ever struggled with insomnia, you know it's that moment in the night where it feels like day will never come. It feels like everybody else in the world is sleeping peaceful except you. And anxiety, if it hits at that time, is always, always worse. Everything feels scary at that time in the morning, doesn't it? Everything, things going round and round and round in your head. In the nighttime, almost anything can feel overwhelming. But that's when Jesus came. Remember, even when the darkness feels overwhelmingly, oppressively heavy, that doesn't mean that God isn't there. It could be when he's right about to turn up. That's what happens. But interestingly, in their fear and exhaustion and anxiety, they don't even recognize him. They think he's a ghost. It just makes them more scared. Sometimes when we're churned up with fear and anxiety, it makes it hard to recognize God, to hear from God. It doesn't mean he's not there. It just means our ability to hear and perceive him has been affected. That's why doing life together with other people is so important. Because sometimes in those moments, it's our friends and our family and those who love us who hear God, who hold hope and hold prayer and all of those things for us because it's too hard for us right in the middle of the storm when the wind is against us. And what is it that Jesus says? Number four, please notice that he doesn't straight away just say to them, don't be afraid, you idiot. Why are you so scared? What's going on? Pull yourself together. He doesn't say that. What Jesus says straight away is, take courage. Literally, this means gain some confidence from within you. You can do it. The French, we as a family spent two years in France. The French, they don't tend to say good luck when you're facing a challenge. They say, bon courage, literally good courage. Have good courage. Be confident. You can do it. And that's what Jesus says to them. He's like, it's okay. And the reason it's okay is so wonderful. It's the next thing he says. He says, it is me. He says, I am here. You're okay. I've got this. It's like that moment, those of you who've got small children or ever gone to watch them in a play and they're so nervous and they're looking through the whole audience for you because they need to know that you're there and they spot you and you're like, oh, hello, I'm here. And then they've got you. It's like an anchor point. Then they can do it because they know you're there. And that's what Jesus is saying. He's an anchor point. He's saying, take courage. I am here. And remember that word because then he does say, don't be afraid. But he's not saying don't have the emotion. What he's saying is don't flee. Don't run away. Don't feel like you have to get out of here because actually it's okay. I've got it covered. You can get through this. It's going to be okay because I'm with you. And that's what Jesus says to us in our fear. He doesn't tell us off for experiencing it. What he says is take courage. I am with you. I've got this covered you can get through it. And of course, in that moment, Peter then is filled with this courage and actually says, well, if it's you, call me. And he gets out of the boat and and steps into total unknown and impossibility and walks out on the water. And at first he does so well when his eyes are on Jesus. But then once again, his fear and anxiety overwhelm him and he begins to sink as a result. 
And that's so understandable when we're anxious. Remember, its job is to get our attention. Peter's brain is literally going, look at all these risky things, you fool. What are you doing? You're on water. And as if that weren't enough, there's waves and wind. You are totally mad. Get back in the boat. And he is having to overcome his anxiety to step into something because he knows that God is calling him to a great potential to do something amazing, something he never thought he could do. And when his eyes are on Jesus, he's got it. And again, when he starts to sink, notice what Jesus does. He doesn't say straight away, don't be afraid, you idiot. What does he do? I love it. He reaches out into the middle of Peter's fear and he takes his hand and he raises him up in it. And he takes control of the situation and he brings calm and the wind and the waves settle God doesn't condemn you this morning for your fear or your anxiety. His longing, his desire is to be with you in the midst of the storms that you face, the inevitable storms that life churns up. He says to you, take courage, it is I, I'm here. Because that's how we fear less, not by trying not to have it in the first place, but by recognising that it's okay, that even though we might experience fear and anxiety, even though we might be rowing or riding against the wind, God's got this. We're not alone. We can do it. This is a great quote from Brené Brown. She says, we're all afraid. We just have to get to the point where we understand it doesn't mean that we can't also be brave. Do you know, every single person in this room is afraid of something. Maybe not right now. Some of you, if a spider crawled down the middle of the aisle, you would show some some fear and anxiety. Some of you, it's other stuff. Maybe life is throwing some things at you right now and you don't know where they're going to go and that's scary. Maybe you know that there's something you need to do coming up this week and you're not sure if you can do it and that's scary. Maybe it's the fear of the unknown reaching into the future. You're, you're parenting kids and there's so much going on in this world. You don't know what their future's going to be like. And that is scary. Who, I don't know what you're facing this morning, but every single person in this room would have a fear. The thing is, everything is scary when you're running away from it. Did you ever play that game when you were a kid where, uh, where as you were going up the stairs, one of your parents would like play chase you up the stairs? Is that just my family? You know, you're going up, they'd come up behind you and you'd feel that little spike of fear even though you knew it was mum or dad. Okay, is that just in my family we did that? Okay, fine. Well, we used to do that all the time. But you feel that fear even though you know it's not scary. Everything is scary when you're running from it. I believe this morning what God wants to say to some of us here is turn around, face the thing you're scared of, take courage because I am with you.